This morning's scripture reading is taken from Hosea chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 11. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of Hodom, and, and have children of Hodom. For the land commits great Hodom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Goma, the daughter of Debalim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bowl of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bowl or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Verse 8, when she had win no mercy, she conceived and bore the son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be get, gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Angie, for reading scripture for us. Hey, before we begin our sermon, uh, I'd like to bring your attention to a couple of books. There's a book table downstairs after the service, uh, so I just want to recommend a couple of books for us to consider. I'm not giving away any, so these you have to buy. Uh, first off, you know, we just finished a Great Commission Month, and there's an excellent book called Short-Term Missions, written by Mac and Leanne. Uh, Mac, Mac's a good friend of mine. He, it's a really helpful book on how we think about going overseas short-term for missions. So this is a good book, Short-Term Missions by Mac and Leanne Styles. Uh, since we're in a new sermon series in Hosea, I'd like to recommend uh, two books on Hosea, or rather one book on Hosea and one something broader. Uh, this one's a Bible study on Hosea, 12 weeks study. You can buy this and just follow along the sermon series and do the studies on your own. Uh, very helpful series uh, called Knowing the Bible. Uh, so I commend this to you, Hosea, and that's available downstairs as well for about $10. Uh, another book, this one is on God's unfaithful wife. You know, if you've read, if you've read Hosea, you know that it's a book about uh, the people's unfaithfulness to God and their adultery against God. So this, this talks about how God is faithful uh, and, and how God responds to an unfaithful people and, and how the theme of spiritual adultery is really found throughout Scripture, not just in the book of Hosea. So this is a, it's a bit more of a challenging read, but those of you who have an appetite for, for you know, a deeper book, uh, this is an excellent book, God's Unfaithful Wife by Ray Raymond Ortland. Uh, I'm, I'm in the midst of reading this now, actually. Uh, and finally, you know, Hosea makes us think about marriage, right? Because it's a book about 
Spiritual Adultery. Uh, this is a really good book on marriage by Christopher Ashe called Married for God. Uh, if you are planning to get married or if you are already married, this is an excellent book to read just for your, for your encouragement and to help you shape and help shape the way you think about marriage in a biblical way. So Married for God by Christopher Ashe. So all these are available downstairs. So do pop down to the book table after the service. Come, can I pray for us as we begin? Dear Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are a God who pursues. You are a God who loves relentlessly. You are a God who is faithful to your promises. And Father, we come to you not as a, a, a deserving people, but we come acknowledging, confessing our own unfaithfulness. So Father, as we come, we, we pray for mercy. We pray that your Spirit would convict our hearts of your truth, Help us to see our sin for what it is, ugly, offensive to you. And help us to respond to you now with uh, trust, knowing that you are a God who is faithful, you are a God who saves, as we've just sung songs about this morning. And Father, we pray that you would turn us away from ourselves and turn us back to you. Renew our hearts, we pray, by your Spirit. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you even for this past few days for the VBS. We thank you for all that have laboured tirelessly for this work. We, we thank you for the precious children who have come in among us. Father, we pray, for, we pray for this work. We pray that you would open hearts. We pray that these children would have eyes to see you and that they would come to know you and love you uh, as their father. So Father, we commit these things to you. We pray that you would help and strengthen us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Betrayal. I think this is one of the most painful words that we can think about. And indeed, you know, many of us perhaps have experienced the pain of betrayal. It may be a friend who leaves us, can't be found in our time of need. It could be a colleague at work who stabs us in the back. A parent can be betrayed by a prodigal child who just rebels against the loving care and authority of a parent. A parent can betray a child's trust by abusing the child. Some of us know the pain of an unfaithful spouse. Now, what makes betrayal especially difficult is that someone we've taken into our circle of love and friendship has betrayed our trust. You know, that, that's especially painful. You know, hurt caused by someone we love is, is particularly damaging. You know, as the English poet William Blake said, it is easier to forgive an enemy than to forgive a friend. And now the Bible speaks honestly about the pain of betrayal as well. You know, uh, David, for example, talks about betrayal in several places in the Psalms. In Psalm 41, David says, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 55, It is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. 
Betrayal is painful. Now, maybe some of you are still struggling with the pain of betrayal as, as you sit and listen to God's word this morning. And maybe some of you have betrayed others. What are we to make of this? You know, the Bible says God is able to empathize with us in our pain, including the pain of betrayal. And why is that? Because God Himself was betrayed. God Himself has suffered the pain of betrayal. God, God Himself has suffered the pain of His loved ones being unfaithful to Him, of, of breaking His trust. And when we're wondering, you know, having suffered betrayal, is our forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation, and healing really possible? Uh, the book of Hosea will tell us, yes. Yes. God would tell us, yes. So today we begin a new sermon series through the book of Hosea, one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And they're called minor not because they are unimportant, they're called minor because their books are shorter than the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Now, why do we need to hear from Hosea? It's because the book reveals how we should believe, belong, and behave as the people of God. But even more importantly, the book of Hosea tells us how God relates to us when we have failed Him. This book is about how God responds when His own people have betrayed Him. Now, verse 1 tells us that Hosea ministered in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. And then in the northern kingdom, Hosea ministered in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, this, so his ministry lasted around probably 760 to 710 BC. I mean, that's, that's the rough uh, timeline. And at that time, the kingdom of Israel had already been divided from, or the kingdom of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel and Judah, the southern kingdom. So ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. And Hosea was one of the last prophets of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Now, what were, what were, what were times like during the, northern, during the days of Hosea? Now, times were really good under the rule of Jeroboam II. Israel was prosperous, Things were going really well. The rich were enjoying their wealth. But it was, but it was also a time of pride, of greed. You know, the rich got richer at the expense of the poor. Growing injustice and inequality caused all kinds of social problems in the country. I, I think we might be able to relate to this, right? Hosea really is a message for our times. It's relevant for our times because we live in an age of affluence, of plenty. We also live in an age of growing injustice and inequalities. Now, we live in a materialistic society where more and newer is always better. Now, greed is good. At least we think greed is good. You know, just that we give a greed a, a nicer name. What do we call greed? We call it upgrading. You know, that's a good thing. Upgrading is good. Greed maybe not so good, but upgrading is always good, right? So we, so we give greed nice names like upgrading. You know, we, we find our worth in what we have. You know, we find our worth in where we live. We find our worth in where we go to school. 
You know, we find our worth in the kind of work that we do, what car we drive, what experiences we enjoy. You know, sometimes I, I post stuff on Facebook and you know, I'm quite eager to check how many likes I get. And the more likes I get, you know, the more my self-esteem goes up. You know, fewer likes is not so good for my self-approval. Uh, so you know, stuff like that, right? We, we find our worth in our experiences so that we can post these experiences and find affirmation from others that we have good experiences worth treasuring. You know, we find our worth in what we eat, right? We take photos of what we eat, say, wow, great. You know, find our worth in where we go for holidays, how many followers we have on social media, and, and so on. I mean, we, we live in, in a world that encourages us to find our worth in these things. Materialistic, just like Israel was in the, in the Old Testament. And Israel's problem was greater than just idolatry. No, Israel's biggest problem was that they, they were claiming to worship God while at the same time actually trusting in idols. So Israel's problem was not just idolatry. Israel's problem was that they were trying to have a foot in two boats, God and idols. Israel was paying lip service to God, but in their hearts, the, the gifts that God had given them had become more important than the giver himself. And this is often how prosperity draws us away from God. You know, the, the, the gifts that God gives us make us so comfortable. They make us so complacent, so much at ease, that they become more important to us than the giver. You know, we, having, having received these gifts, they, we start relying on them. You know, things like a good job, things like healthy finances, things like a comfortable place to live. You know, we start relying on these things that God gives to us more than God Himself. You know, we expect these things to give us joy, comfort, security. Uh, we, we, we say we worship God, but we live as though God is not enough. And we trust in things like work, wealth, success, significance, power, pleasure. But God will not remain silent as His people turn away from Him. That's why he says in verse 2, second half of verse 2, the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You know, the, the word whoredom is a significant word because it brings to mind the language of relationship being broken. The word whoredom brings to mind the language of marriage and unfaithfulness. God, God is portraying himself as a faithful husband who created and redeemed a people for himself. In fact, Ezekiel 16, if you read Ezekiel 16, it, it's even more explicit on how God is a husband. Listen to this from Ezekiel 16. When I passed by you again, God is speaking, and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. That's the language of marriage. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you declares the Lord God, and you became mine. It's, if you read Ezekiel 16, it's, it's amazing love language used by God to describe His relationship with His people. You know, this, this covenant relationship between God and His people, you know, this is the ultimate marriage. This is marriage. 
No, it's not just it looks like marriage, but this is the ultimate marriage. And our marriages are supposed to point to this ultimate marriage. So our marriages are not ultimate. This marriage between God and His people, this is the ultimate marriage, that our marriages are meant to reflect. This is how God pledges Himself to His people, you know, for, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, I will be your God and you shall be my people. So to bring the point about Israel's unfaithfulness more powerfully, what does God say? God, God tells Hosea to marry Gomer, now, a woman who will be unfaithful to him and perhaps is already known for her promiscuity. Maybe Gomer already had a reputation for being unfaithful. And God says, Hosea, go marry Gomer. Wow. Hosea's marriage is supposed to be a real-life picture of Israel's unfaithfulness. Like Gomer, Israel will also forsake God for other lovers. So when we think about sin, you know, how do we think about sin? You know, sometimes we think about sin just, okay, there are Ten Commandments and I break them, I've broken a rule, so I've sinned. Okay, that's sin. But I, I don't think that's the only way the Bible speaks about sin. Sin is not just breaking the law or breaking rules. Sin is, is a personal rejection of God. Sin is, is a personal offense against this God who has committed himself in love to us. Sin is, is spurning the love of God. Uh, that, that's sin. It, it's kind of looking God's love in the mouth, as it were, and kind of saying, you know, forget you. I'd rather love myself. I mean, that's, that's sin. That's, that's, why Hosea, that's why God here in Hosea uses the language of whoredom. Sin is unfaithfulness. It is adultery. It's spiritual adultery against the God who has set his love on us, who, who has entered into this exclusive relationship with us. Israel was cheating on God. Friends, you know, who or, or what do we love more than God? You know, do, do you love anyone or do you love anything more than you love God? You know, what do you think about during the day? You know, what, what really grabs your affections? What, what makes you happy? What makes you afraid? You know, those, those are good questions to think about as you think about, you know, is, is your heart really given over to, to God? You know, James says, right, he, he says in the New Testament, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So how will God respond? Point two, God disciplines faithfully. Verses four to nine. So Hosea and Gomer have three children. Uh, in fact, more accurately, you notice that for the second and third child, uh, Hosea is not mentioned. You know, first child says Hosea and Gomer had a child. Second and third child, Hosea's name is not mentioned. So, so some commentators think that the second and third child were illegitimate. Probably the products of Gomer's unfaithfulness. So that, that could have been the case. But not, whatever it is, they, they have three children. 
just real, no mercy, and not my people. No, the names, we are, the names we give our children often reveal the aspirations we have for them, right? I mean, we give them good names. Like, I, I name my son Zachary because that means the Lord remembers. You know, Ian is simply the, the, the Gallic form of God is gracious, right? So the Lord remembers, God is gracious, great names, and hopefully they, these things are true for them, that you know, they will come to know God for who He is. But in the case of Hosea's children, you know, the, the names are not very complimentary, now, the, the names, if you think about the names of Hosea's children, they point to the reality of God's judgment against Israel. Jezreel, not, no mercy, and not my people. Can you imagine every time Hosea calls his kids, hey, Jezreel, come here, Jezreel. Or, hey, no mercy, come here, no mercy. Because somebody tell you, hey, hey, no mercy, stop doing that. Come down, come down. You know? Hey, not my people, come here. You know? Imagine if you're, you, you, you're spending time with Hosea's family and you keep hearing these names. No mercy, not my people. Jesri, what, what would you feel? Like, well, okay, I think you're trying to tell me something here. <laughs> the, their names are prophetic oracle against Israel. Every time Hosea called his children's names, it was a powerful reminder of the coming judgment. How do we think about judgment? Is judgment the absence of God's faithfulness. I would put it before us that it's not. Judgment actually shows God's faithfulness because He is true to who He really is. God is holy, and, and therefore God's people, because we bear His name, must be holy as He is holy. We reflect what God is like. You know, think, look at the recent case of the death of the SEDF servicemen. You know, after that, the commissioner of the SCDF, Eric Yap, said these words, you know, this incident has damaged the credibility of the force, right? This, this single incident, just involving a, a few people, this has damaged the credibility of the entire SCDF. Now, why, why is that? Because they wore the uniform. Because they called themselves officers of the SCDF. The wrongdoing of a few has tarnished the reputation of the entire force. And in a similar way, Israel's mission was meant to put on a uniform, right? God, God saved them, gave them the uniform to be God's people. And Israel's mission was not just to say nice things about God, but Israel's mission was to live in a way that showed that God is real and that He is holy. Imagine, by, by turning away from God, by committing spiritual adultery, what were they doing? They, they were lying about God to the world. Israel damaged the credibility of their witness by how they lived. In, instead of glorifying God, Israel was kind of dragging God's name through the mud. So God can't remain indifferent to this. You know, if, if a husband were indifferent to his wife's unfaithfulness, you know, you know if, if, if you tell a husband, hey, you know, your wife, I think she's seeing another man, and the husband just says, oh, well, you know, things happen, she's, she's free to do what she wants, you know, we have an understanding. I mean, you, you know, if, if the husband responds that way, I think, I think you'd be quite shocked, right? Hey, do you, do you not hear what I just told you? Do you not 
love your wife? Does she not belong to you as your wife? If a husband were indifferent to his wife's unfaithfulness, we wonder if he truly cares for his wife. In the same way, God is a jealous God. And he's a jealous God who passionately loves his people. And because God is faithful to his people, because God loves his people, God will discipline Israel in order to win her back. Now, this, this, is, this discipline is not revenge. It's not God kind of getting even because they've hurt him. No, this, this discipline is the pursuing love of a faithful husband. So verse 4, God says, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Jezreel was a place where King Ahab murdered Naboth in order to get his vineyard. Jezreel was also the place where King Jehu massacred and slaughtered Ahab's followers. So the name Jezreel was not a nice name. It was associated with violence and bloodshed in the history of Israel. Violence and bloodshed. Now, you know, we sit here in very civilized Singapore. You know, violence and bloodshed might be the furthest from our minds, right? Think, well, you know, I think we're safe from those kinds of sins. Violence, bloodshed. But are we? Are we really? You know, if you remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus says, right, that he says, you know, you, you have heard it said, you shall not kill. And Jesus says, we don't have to physically kill someone in order to commit murder. We don't have to physically kill someone to be guilty of violence and bloodshed. You know, James chapter 4 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, in, in God's sight, being angry and harsh with someone, gossiping, putting someone down, complaining, quarreling to get our way, no, in, in God's sight, that's tantamount to violence and bloodshed. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can say all of us have blood on our hands. The second child is named No Mercy. She's a sign to Israel that God will soon judge his people. Assyria will conquer Israel. Israel will go into exile as prisoners of war. You know, exile is worse than the, just the loss of a homeland, just, just the loss of an address. Exile is the loss of God's presence because the land was where God dwelt with his people. And being exiled from the land means separation from God. You know, it's like a repeat of what happened in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned and were driven from the garden. That's exile. So Israel will no longer receive mercy from God. And Hosea's third child is called Not My People. Not My People. It's a shocking statement. You know, because Israel was supposed to be God's people, that, that's who they were. That, that's the core of their identity. To be God's people was what God had promised their forefather Abraham. You know, God rescued Israel from Egypt, 
so that they might be his treasured possession. And God made a covenant with them, saying to them, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. This pledge that God makes to them is the heart of the covenant relationship between God and his people. It's like a marriage vow, as we heard earlier. But now God has had enough. He's had enough of Israel's unrepentant adultery. God, when he says, not my people, what's God doing? He's cancelling the covenant. He's annulling the covenant. He's actually divorcing his people. That's the language of divorce that God uses here in Hosea 1. Not my people, I'm no longer married to them. That's why this language is so shocking in Hosea 1. It's very sobering language. Israel will be scattered among the nations. They will become refugees. You know, what, what, you know, refugees, what are, they, what, what are the refugees? What are refugees like? You know, they have no state, no identity, no place of dwelling. Right? They, they kind of float from country to country. Whoever wants to take them in, they might stay there for a while. But, but Israel will become refugees who don't belong anywhere. You know, what, what are we to make of these verses? These are sobering verses. I think first we need to come to grips with the holiness of God. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. You know, we need to know God for who He truly is. And when we know Him for who He truly is, we, we begin to see our sin for what it truly is. Second, these verses call us to humble self-examination. Have we become like Old Testament Israel? Have our hearts become hardened towards God? Do we take grace for granted? Do we cheapen grace by thinking we can go on sinning because God will surely forgive? Now, third, these verses warn us of the reality of judgment. Now, we, we mustn't confuse God's patience with God's passivity. You know, he will judge for the sake of His own glory. You know, when we think about God's judgment, we have to think about how his glory is at stake. And God will do what God will do to uphold the glory of his name. God's patience is meant to lead us to repent. You know, we, we hear in the New Testament, right? God is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God doesn't judge Israel in order to destroy Israel. That the purpose of God's judgment is discipline, not destruction. God is faithful to purify a people for, his, for himself. He disciplines us for our good so that we may become more like Jesus. Now, Hebrews 12 tells us God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God faithfully disciplines Israel in order to make Israel the people that they should be. You know, this is the reason why the Bible calls us as a people now to practice church discipline. You know, as God's people, all of us, if we call ourselves Christians, fellow members of this church, God, call, God calls us all to be holy as he is holy. The members of the body of Christ should look like Christ. 
because we belong to his body. As fellow members of Grace Baptist Church, we are responsible for speaking the truth in love to one another so that we grow in holiness together. You know, I, I need you all to do this for me. You know, don't think I'm a pastor, I'm free from this. No, I need you all to do this for me as a fellow struggling sinner in need of God's grace. I need you all to speak the truth into my life so that I can become more and more like Jesus. I need your help. I can't grow to become more like Christ on my own. I need you to do this because my heart is so easily deceived by sin, so easily ensnared by the attractiveness of this world. My heart is prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. We just sang that. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we are sinless, but being a Christian does mean that we are repentant. A Christian is a repenting sinner. The normal Christian life is a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Not just, oh, I repented 10 years ago, I'm fine. No, no it's, it's a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Continually turning away from sin, continually turning back to Christ. And so what should worry us, you know what we should really be worried about, is not sin per se, but what we should be wor really worried about is unrepentance. And that's more worrying than acknowledging the fact that we have sin, because we all have sin. Sometimes we need to tell an unrepentant person that we can no longer in truth affirm that he or she is living as a Christian. I think that, that's part of what discipline looks like. You know, if a person says, I'm sinning, too bad, I'm happy, and the person persists in unrepentant sin, then I think God calls us as His people to actually lovingly tell this person, I, I'm not sure that you're living as a Christian because as we heard from God's Word, God's people are to be holy as He is holy. And, and you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't have your foot in two boats. You can't love God and love mammon, for example. Right? So, so that's, that's, that's what discipline looks like in some cases. And when we say that to someone, you know, I can't affirm that you're following Jesus. When we say that to someone, we don't do this to hurt or to shame the person. No, no, not at all. We do this out of love for the person. You know, imagine, if this person's house is on fire, what's the most loving thing to do? Hey, everything's fine. Enjoy your living room. You have a nice couch, great colours. What do you do if this person's house is on fire? You tell the person, get out! Get out of the house. Don't, don't you know your house is on fire? What, what's wrong with you? Right? right? You, you probably raise your voice, right? You probably kind of get a bit more urgent. But, but that's the most loving thing to do. And if you know someone who is living in a way that is moving them further and further away from Christ and God's holiness, then the most loving thing to do is to tell this person, I, I, you need to come back. You need to come back. Loving as you do, uh, living as you do now, I, I fear that you are not following Christ and you need to come back. So we pray that such discipline will lead the person to repentance and restoration. 
And we do this because we love the person, and we do this because we want to protect the honour of God's name. Because we who bear God's name are to be holy as He is holy. Discipline is God's loving way of calling us back. And sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, God uses us as His people to call others back to Himself. Is God convicting your heart now? Is God convicting your heart now? You know yourself to be a sinner. I know I do. God is calling us back to stop running and to turn back to Him. Finally, God loves faithfully. From verse 10 and into the first verse of chapter 2. God has been betrayed by His adulterous people. Yet the forsaken God continues to love faithfully. He is the faithful husband whose love never lets us go. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great, great is His faithfulness. And God God lovingly kind of woos us back to Himself. God's this really good husband who, who who speaks words of love and encouragement to his wayward wife and says, hey, come back. Come back. He, he woos us back with promises of salvation and hope, good news of restoration and reconciliation. You know, the, the promises of, of chapter 1 verse 10 to chapter 2 verse 1, they, they reverse the judgment pronounced in the earlier verses. From not a people, there will be a restored people of God. From no mercy, they will be adopted as God's children. From bloodshed and death, there will be new life and growth. It's a complete turnaround from the judgments of verses 4 to 9. Now, God's people, verse 10 tells us, will be like the sand of the sea. This recalls God's covenant of Abraham in Genesis 22. God tells Abraham, I will bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. God hasn't forgotten. God remembers His covenant with Abraham all the way back in Genesis. And so God will be reconciled to His people. He will be a father to them and they shall be His children. God will again draw near to His people in closeness and in intimacy. the, The exile of Israel was like the death of the nation. But there will be a resurrection. There will be new life. Jezreel actually means God sows. That's the meaning of Jezreel, God sows. And here in this, in this passage, he's the living God who gives new life and causes his people to again grow and flourish. They shall spring up from the land, verse 11, like a great harvest. Great is the day of Jezreel. Great is the day of God sowing new life, growth. Harvesting. It's language of verse 11. And and Hosea tells us God will unite His people under one head. Both Israel and Judah will again be united as His people, one people, and they'll have one head. One king over God's people. Now who is this king? Who is this king? Who is this one head 
who rules over God's people. He is the greater David, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He's none other than King Jesus. He's the Christ, the chosen one, God's promise, and specially chosen king to rule over his people. So how do we become the people of God? You know, how do, we, do, we, do we need to become Israelites? Do, we, do I need to become a Jew? Do I need to practice Jewish rights in order to become the people of God? No. You, you become part of the people of God by submitting yourself, humbling yourself under this one king, this one head, Jesus. In, indeed, Jesus says, or rather it says in John chapter 1, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's how we become the people of God. Once we were far from God, but now if we are in Christ, we have been brought near to God as brothers and sisters in his family. What's more, we, we read in the rest of Scripture that Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom who faithfully loves his bride and sacrificed his life for his bride. We, the church, we are the bride of Christ. We've been unfaithful, but Jesus pursued us like a good husband. He pursued us in love. He pursued us, each one of us, in faithfulness. And he brought us in to his people, and he made us his own. That's what this bridegroom has done for us. He took our sin, our filth, our guilt, our shame. He took off our dirty clothes and he gave us new clothes. He took our sin and our shame and he gave us instead the beauty of holiness. He made us his own. Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. Yet in his perfect life, his closest friends betrayed him. Jesus suffered the pain of exile. He was separated from God. That's why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was exiled so that we do not have to be. He died the death that we should have died so that we can be forgiven and brought back to God. In Christ, we become God's people and we receive mercy. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And in Jesus, we have the clearest display of forgiveness, of restoration, of reconciliation and healing. Jesus shows us that these things are possible even after the worst of betrayals. Because the, the betrayals that we've suffered cannot be compared to the betrayal that we've inflicted on God himself. And if God can forgive us, surely we can forgive one another. Surely we can forgive others. Jesus shows us that forgiveness and restoration are possible after betrayal. The gospel saves sinners like us. We have betrayed God. And, and therefore now in Christ, in the gospel, the gospel gives grace to those of us who are betrayers. Maybe some of us are still betraying others. 
and the gospel gives grace to us, there is forgiveness. The gospel also gives grace to those of us who have been betrayed. We're able to forgive because Christ has shown us mercy. We can show mercy to the prodigals who have strayed away as we urge them to come home to Christ because we have received mercy. And one day, this bridegroom will return for us, his bride. And on that great eternal day, the pain of betrayal and of sin will be past history. Our hearts will no longer be prone to wander from the one who loves us. And then we, as the bride of Christ, we shall no longer be faithless on that great day when the bridegroom returns. We shall know him, we shall be married to him forever, and we shall know only the pure joy of eternal union with our bridegroom. Friends, that, that's the hope that is ours in Christ. So come to him, friends. Come to him, know him, know his love, love him. Shall we pray together? Dearest God, we thank you so much for how you are a faithful God. Oh Lord, we thank you for how you've pursued us in love, brought us back to yourself through your Son. Oh Father, we pray that you'd help us to, to love you, to follow you, to delight in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'd like to invite those who are serving communion to step forward.